Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Episode 60 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg and I'm on the back balcony at my brother's house. Hi, guys. Hi. 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 We just had dinner and um, I have to record this because we need to talk about what's on episode 60 this week. It is happiness coach Rinstevader. He's a really interesting guy that I met in the Netherlands and I can't wait for you to hear this show if you are new to the show welcome 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 please subscribe you can subscribe using your favorite podcasting app and um you can also uh, jump on the mailing list at osherginsberg.com i'll send you a reminder every week about what's on the show i'll never spam you if you do like the show if it does resonate with you please the best thing you can possibly do for me is to tell someone either you know tell someone that you know or tell someone through twitter or tell someone through facebook or carry a pigeon or myspace or however you do it um that'd be the best thing you could do for me it is uh if you're in brisbane no you though you know that it is hot as balls uh at the moment and it's very nice of uh, climate change to have organized a 44 degree day in november when the g20 was in town um 
just in case any of them were in any doubt that climate change is happening. <laughs> um, it's pretty wild being in Brisbane and hearing about 44 degree days. I mean, I grew up here. I spent most of my life here and not once did it ever get that hot. It's pretty wild. Anyway, um, I hope you are doing okay. Uh, this week has been all right for me. Um, I've been traveling a lot, obviously. I was in Amsterdam last time we spoke and... Uh, I've since been in um, Sydney and Melbourne. Um, Melbourne was good. I hung out with my brother and his boyfriend, and I, uh, I drove a Tesla. Speaking of climate change, um, unbelievable. That thing is the closest thing to a rocket ship that a normal human will ever get to pilot. It was unbelievable. If you ever get a chance to drive a Tesla Model S, drive a Tesla Model S incredible car I, I just certainly hope that the same company can put something out at a lower price point um 500 kilometer range absolute rocket ship it's an astonishing vehicle um for the same price as a bmw you're like it's just bonkers absolutely bonkers but um it's been really great to see my family um i did a lot of uncling today which was good <laughs> there was uh, a lot of backyard pool action here in, in the suburbs of Brisbane, which I highly recommend if you are uh, feeling down at all. Um, get around little people and have splash fights in a uh, in a in a backyard um, kiddie pool, and it'll do you wonders. Uh, it was a bit weird um, sitting in the kiddie pool watching uh, Obama bump out all the big cargo planes coming over, flying Marine One and the Beast in and out of the country. So that was. It was a bit odd, but uh, these are the things that happen when the G20 is town. Old little, old little Brisbane, little cow town that I left in 98. We're growing up. World leaders coming to town, cuddling koalas. Very exciting. Um, let me tell you about my guest. My guest is an incredible man. Rens de Vader. He's a, he's a Dutch guy um, that I met in the Netherlands while, um, while I'm at, uh, at Think, at the school I'm working at now. And he, he's got a very interesting job. He's a former sports psychologist, so his job used to be helping elite football teams and elite sports people become even better champions, if you will. And now he teaches companies how to be happy because happy companies are more productive and they make more environmentally sound decisions, to be honest. Um, you can find out more about what he does, energystrategy.eu. Um there's plenty of interesting things there you can explore about what he does there but he's got a remarkable story and a remarkable story um, he talks about how Buddhism and martial arts kind of guided him out of what was setting up to be a fairly troubled teenage life into his current career there's a great story about how he nearly died on the side of a mountain in Russia in minus 40 degree temperatures um and then there's a whole bunch of stuff about how you can be happier today. Today. Really fascinating guy. He's got a book on Amazon as well. If you just uh, search his name on Amazon, you'll see it. R-E-N-S-T-E-R-W-E-I-J-D-E. Rens the Vader. Enjoy this. This is a conversation that we had in Amsterdam about two weeks ago. And um, it was a beautiful day. I rode my bicycle over to see him. There was lots of trees. It was the autumn, so there's lots of yellow and brown leaves falling all around and canals and houseboats and all kinds of fairly picturesque stuff. And in the middle of this conversation, you'll hear the primary school next door go out for lunch. So that sound of the background, children playing, and the complete joy of youth. 
just unbridled and rising from below. It was a nice backdrop. Happiness, if you will. Enjoy. I'm getting used to, uh, as I'm sitting in the Think office, I'm hearing more and more uh, Nederland, so it's helping. But I still, I'm not quite sure. How do I pronounce your last name? Uh, Derveide. Derveide? Yeah, Derveide, yeah. Grenz Derveide. Grenz Derveide, yeah. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me in your house. Great. You're welcome. Here in uh, Amsterdam, it's a foggy day. Mm -hmm. It's kind of cold. And we'll look, there's some guys over there. Are they sitting on the roof? Are they working on the roof? What are those guys? Working, probably installing a rooftop terrace, which we like very much. You don't quite get here in Amsterdam the, abs the population density. It's intense here. It's really, really intense, yeah. But that actually, it, that's partly because of the people living here and it's partly because of the tourists. Because I would say the people you meet on the streets in this area, probably 50% of them are tourists. Right, because we're in the canals. Yeah. We're in the thick yeah. of it. But your street's nice. You've got houseboats and stuff like True. that. True. But then the, the university is next to my house, so there's a lot of, uh, of students and, uh, and people. But it's a great area. Yeah. Good to be Did here. you grow up in Amsterdam? No. I grew up in, in Haarlem, which is uh, it's 20 kilometers from here to the west, closer to the beach. So it's, uh, yeah. Very good place to be. My, my parents still live there and I live here. So. The original Harlem with two A's. Original Harlem with two A's, exactly. Yeah. exactly. What was that like? It was very good. It's, um, it's sort of a suburb of Amsterdam, I would say. A lot of people that have, have a job in Amsterdam and they do well, they go back to Harlem because it's close to the beach. Um, it, it's essentially quite a, uh, a relaxed, green place, a lot of dunes, sea nearby, so very, very good place, yeah. Were you a happy kid? Um, I was a happy kid, Mo I would say primary school, yes, very much, very much, very popular, um, so good memories. Then I moved to, um, I think it's called secondary school, the, the school afterwards, and then it changed radically, so I, I was used to being very popular and I wasn't in the second, uh, second school, not at all. Um, I started doing martial arts every day, hours, probably three hours per day, did that the whole phase in my, in my second school. I think from my 13 till 24. Um, so I actually spent yeah, a lot of the time in the, in the martial arts uh, in the dojo. So hang on. Yeah. So you're 13 years old, you go to high school, and I remember what that's like. You're, you're the oldest, biggest kid in the school, and then all of a sudden I remember being in the line to get food at lunchtime, yeah. and there's a guy in front of me who smells. He's got a beard, and he's wearing a school uniform. You know, mm -hmm. He's like a man. And I'm just, oh, how are you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we, we don't have the uniform thing, and it, it's a bit, uh, I think it's probably different than the US, but it's... Uh, I grew up in Australia. I went to Australia, in Australia. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but then, the, yeah, it, it's probably different. And uh, still, the point is that you're, you're used to being the old guy and the popular guy, and suddenly you're not. And I, I remember coloring my hair. I made my hair purple and stuff. So I thought it was cool. Obviously, it's, it wasn't very cool for a lot of other people. So uh, then the martial arts was the, the way out. So how did, how did martial arts turn up? Uh, it turned, I had done it since I was four as a kid, but I did it once a week. Judo, uh -huh. like a lot of kids in the Netherlands, they, play, they do judo as a as sort of a way to learn to um, be in touch with other bodies and to learn to fall and to uh, yeah, learn coordination. Uh, so I did that for already nine years then, and I was a bit fed up with judo, but then I decided to go for it for real. Did Bujinkan, Taekwondo, Aikido, uh, Katurishin, a lot of different martial arts, all at the same time, every day, hours per day. Did you have one Sifu or many? Many. Yeah? Yeah, many. One per sport. Right. And yeah. so each day of the week was a different... 
Pretty much. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 Really that stuff's not cheap. How did you convince your parents to pay for it? Uh, I don't think it was that expensive actually. It's it's pretty pretty cheap stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's usually it's, it's like a like a place or a little little gym and there's some some mats on the ground and then and that's it. And you get a you get a suit, uh, a, a gi. Yeah. And you buy it hundred, I think. Uh, uh, gilders at the time. Yeah. Not very expensive. But you use the same gi for every different yeah, sport? pretty much. Okay. Uh, it's not very expensive, no. Right. No, no. So you're, you know, you're getting your, the Bruce Lee scenario, just learning everything. Yeah, I, I did actually read the books by Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee's Lee. I, I books? I did, yeah. I, I read... Be like everything. water. Yeah, it, really, really in that direction. And and all the all the classics, all the Buddhist classics, um, uh, Lao Tzu classics, all the, all the classics. I was When you were a teenager? Yeah, yeah. Wasn't a very happy teenager though, and maybe that's also why I read it. I had some struggles. Yeah. 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 What did those struggles? I mean, I was overweight at school, and so I just hated it. But I didn't have, you know, death hands <laughs> like you. Well, I think I think the struggles were, were quite a bit with myself uh, and 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 the re- relationship to um, to other people. So I was really interested in different things. Um, Buddhism, for example, I've I've been interested in that since I was thirteen, uh, I guess. And my friends were were drinking beer and playing soccer literally every day of the week. So their standard evening of the week was on a little um, uh, area where they always played soccer together and they drank some beers afterwards every night. I was never there. I was always doing martial arts and reading stuff that I didn't really wanted to know about. So I got a bit in the, in the struggle with myself if, I, if I'm like the, just a bit of a crazy guy doing very different things. My girlfriend at the time thought the same stuff. She actually just sent me a message now. I'm so happy to see you did what you always wanted to do. <laughs> Apparently, she she thinks it's the same the same guy, but but she always went for parties and and for drinks, and and I always went to read Buddhist stuff and to meditate and do martial arts. So it was a bit of a, the crazy nut in. The <laughs> and how early how early did this um, start to uh, I guess unlock your? I mean, I'm guessing that. You may have fit, felt some powerlessness, so you chased down the martial arts stuff and you were searching for answers. When did this start to enhance you? When did this start to go, to like really fortify who you were? Yeah, well, I, I think that went rather quickly in, in the martial arts scene. So at some point you have, there's a couple of different scenes where you, where you live in and, and the martial arts scene was one. And, and there I quickly grew and then I became better and better and because I did so much. So I was, I was quite okay in, in doing martial arts. And in that area, then you, you have self-esteem and you know you're capable and you're good. Uh, obviously, that's a different scene than when you're back in school, for example. Um, so I, I did have a lot of self-esteem at some point, but very much... But let um, me guess, no one ever based. fucked with you at school. No. <laughs> that never, ever happened. Yeah, well, he's I, the, yeah let's not pick on Renz. He's the guy <laughs> in the corner who walks like the dude from the Kung Fu TV show. <laughs> yeah. If, he, if he's quiet and he walks gracefully, he could probably mess us up in two moves. He's got the one-inch punch. It, it happened once. I, I had a little, one little fight once with a guy that was actually fighting a friend of mine. Uh, but... When I was 13, like nothing really. In, in the end, my, my parents' analysis, and I think also my sister will say the same, he trained like martial arts for like 24 years, never had one fight, absolutely useless. <laughs> but in my personal development, it was very, very useful too. We'll never one fight outside of a grading, I'm sure in gradings you sparred. Of course, yeah. So you yeah. have the internal fights for the grading system, yeah. but, but not, not for real. No. So what about after high school? When did you start going, I want to go check out where this Buddhism stuff came from? Yeah, so so, so the path for me was, was essentially from um, looking to get a more clear identity in the in, in beginning of puberty. 
into martial arts where I where I sort of found at least uh, one type of identity for me. And and then I got very much into Buddhism and through Buddhism I got into psychology and also Western psychology. And therefore I decided to study, actually study psychology in the university, which I thought was the most um, depressing study of all times. I really didn't like it from, from day one till end of the fourth year, which was uh, the finish. I didn't like it at all. Uh, wasn't very much experience based, like Buddhism is very much based on experience practical stuff, uh, wasn't in there, uh, a lot of analytics, which I didn't like, um, not, yeah. Was Why did you stick with it? Yeah, very good question, I, probably because I, I really value resilience and, and I think you should stick with stuff if you, if you choose for it, but I had a lot of doubts, and I think looking backwards is probably, it was a good choice to stick with it, but never, never enjoyed it very much. No. <laughs> so when it was over, you finished. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing like the, the ending of the martial arts discipline in university happened around the same time. W what happened then? Did you, is that when you first started to travel? Is that when you first took your big trip? Um, I, did, I actually traveled pretty much all my life also during university, but how it ended was pretty much with me being an extreme sort of martial arts guy, very, very focused on martial arts primarily. Uh, last trip, I, for example, I did when I was at university was to India because in India the the oldest martial art of the of the world is still practiced a bit. Uh, it's called Karate Payat, and I went there to just train that stuff for a few weeks with Indian guys, which which was awesome. Um, but I finished as sort of a martial arts guy that also studied psychology, and I was really sort of clueless on how to sort of integrate the two. And and after a while, I I found that that there was something which was called sports psychology that I could actually. In, in theory, integrated too. It didn't really exist in the Netherlands. There were, I think, two guys doing it, uh -huh. very small scale. Uh, and I decided to build a company which was the essentially the should be the epicenter of sports psychology in the Netherlands, which is experience-based, very very practical, um, and based on science, based on my study. But but an inter yeah, integrated. Uh, so I did. But the first challenge came, I think, maybe two weeks after starting the the company. Because I thought I was uh, an educated psychologist and, uh, and everything would work out. And I got a client and we met in a bar in, in Amsterdam. And the guy was a professional sailor and he was going to sail from, I think, somewhere in France to Brazil. And he had done it a few times before. He was a professional guy. And he said, well, the whole thing, the problem is that you can't sleep very much. And because you don't sleep very much, you make very poor decisions. I want your help with making better decisions. So what do you think? I was just absolutely, I remember saying that I really don't have a clue what this guy should do. I studied like a lot of like basic models in psychology, didn't have a clue what this guy should do. And then I decided pretty much to spend one more year on studying for myself and then really get the clients in. Right. So it's a bit of a humbleness experience. <laughs> I want to, because considering your mountaineering humility and getting humility put upon you does come back into the story, but I just want to go back one, one step. When was the first time that you, I guess I should have asked the question better. When was the first time that you went, I want to get on a plane and see where this Buddhism stuff came from? When was the first time that you went, I want to go check this out in person? See the, um, or where, where you're, where you chase down the actual location of the spiritual or the, or the, or the martial arts thing. I, I did that. I think it's because there's multiple sources for martial arts. It really depends on the martial arts. It also, the same is true for Buddhism. So I went at some point, I went to India. I have uh, one of my best friends in, in high school 
Um, he's called Alexander. Now he has a different name, but he, he went to India. Uh, I know all about changing your name. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but he never came back. And, and so he's essentially, he's, um, I think he's officially called a monk, but he's also teaching a lot of thousands of people in India now. Wow. So I went, maybe that's around 10 years ago, I went to visit him to spend uh, What were you, like 18? Him. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and spend a week there in silence meditating. And there was the, the biggest meditation on earth with 3 million people meditating on a very large area somewhere in India, which I joined. So, uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. It was really, really impressive. What, so what was that like? You've left Amsterdam and you arrived in India. What was, the, what was that like? Yeah, yeah. Um, first time in India, yeah, it's, it's like pretty much every time in India, but it's obviously it's, it's, it's a mess. It's just, I loved it. I loved the people very much. Uh, I know being being struck by, by, by poverty. I also know being held by a lot of children that put a cobra in my face. Like they, they held a little box with a snake. And obviously, if you look at the snake, you have to give them some rupees. And I actually remember that a lot of kids would sort of grab my arms and legs to keep me there. And the other guy would show me a cobra in front of my face. So I had seen it. So I also should pay for the <laughs> for the sight of the cobra. A lot of those memories that pop up. And uh, and the strongest one, I, I also went to train the, the India in the martial art. And these guys are so flexible and they can do everything. And I was like the big, absolutely not flexible Dutch guy coming in. And I thought I was very impressive because I was a good fighter. But every move they did in that martial arts, I, I couldn't do. Even after a few weeks, it's hopeless. Yeah. So what was it like, though, that first trip to India where you did that massive meditation? And I'm sure, you know, at that point, I remember being, you know, 18, you're fairly, you're able to be quite singular-minded. You're able to, you're not quite polluted with things like taxes and rent and things like that. Yeah. What was it like coming back to Amsterdam that first time? Yeah, I, I think at the time, I'm not sure if India was that big of a transformation. I was already in, in that period. I think my most of my puberty was, I was meditating um, in a sort of very strict regime. So if I, if I commit to something, I really do it in a disciplined way. So I meditated 30 minutes every day for the last, I think, six years before I went to India. And India was sort of a strengthening of that whole thing where I really went into sort of a week-long meditation. But essentially, was the yeah, it was a similar mindset that I have had been training already in, in, in martial arts a lot. So, yeah, when I got back, it was to strengthen my beliefs. And uh, I know being a bit struck by the guy that never came back, Alexander, my friend, that he stayed. He's still there. Right. He, he came back once for dinner. But uh, since then, I've never seen him. <laughs> <laughs> he has a beard and long hair now. And I see some pictures sometimes, but uh, he has never returned. <laughs> yeah. So on the other side of uh, this one year of study that you did, yeah. and what was it that changed in that one year that helped you be able to be better at uh, sports psychology? I think it was some, some clients that were a bit easier to treat. Like, like you need some, some little steps on the ladder to, uh, to become better and to get more self-esteem in that job. And... The fact that the job didn't exist in the Netherlands was, was a big thing. I didn't have people to look up to or to, to join in the, in the mission. Uh, so I remember having a few, a few good jobs. One at Cirque du Soleil with a guy. It was just it was a very, very, very cool job. Um, it was a guy juggling sticks the whole day, uh, literally the whole day. He did, like I think, two shows per day where he had to juggle a lot of sticks, very complicated moves. Uh, and he, was, he wasn't doing so well, and he, he gave me a phone call if we could talk. And we walked through the Fondel Park in Amsterdam. He, he told me the story, a uh, story with a girlfriend that broke up, a lot of, lot of different sides to it. But it ended up in him being um, 
not very good in the performances. He dropped the sticks quite a lot. Uh, and he asked me if I could find a solution for it. And, and we did. And in the end, we got him to a place where he didn't make any mistakes in a lot of performances in a row. So he was pretty much on the high. Uh, and I really felt very good about it. And it got, got self-esteem that it was actually helping people. Uh, then I got the, the most lucky thing ever, which sort of put me on the map as a sports psychologist, which I still think was, let's say, 80% luck and 20% skills. Uh, when the soccer coach called me for the, the lowest team in the professional league in the Netherlands, uh, and he said, well, Rens, we have played 12 games away, zero wins. Uh, I've done 12 speeches now. I'm pretty much out of, of my options. So anything you can help me with, um, I'm open for. So you get the team, do anything you like, and just make sure they actually win one game away, because I think that will be a transformational moment for them after 12 losses, so. Um, and you're 26 years yeah. old? Yeah, I was, I was uh, younger, I think, 25 or something. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, so around the same age as these guys? Yeah, 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 pretty much. Yeah. Remember coming in, first moment, and this is a group of soccer players. So it's, it's professional? Professional soccer players, yeah. yeah. So they earn more than you do by far, and they're also quite arrogant, and they, they usually hate psychologists very much. They don't want psychologists to be there. First question you get, Rens, um, can you play soccer? Answer is no, <laughs> so that's not really. Okay, nice. That's already sort of like <laughs> breaking down your self-esteem quite a bit. Then I plugged in my uh, my laptop to the, the big screen and on the screen it showed a guy climbing a mountain, which I had changed just before the session. I had a picture of me on the mountain before that and I had changed it because I thought it was a bit arrogant to, to leave it there. So I had Googled a, a great picture of a guy on I think K2. And the first thing that happened was I plugged the, the laptop in and the guy said, is that you? said, no, is it just Google then? I said, yeah, it's Google. Ah, that's so fake. So the, the, the first two moments in the team were like, they were terrible. They were just, wow. just terrible. Uh, then we started to do the work. We did some sessions uh, very close to positive psychology, what I'm doing now. Uh, and after the first session, they played their first game away and they won. Huh. One to zero. And I was in the Alps, I was climbing with friends and I got a, a message from the coach saying, gee, ha, and when are you coming back? This is awesome. <laughs> Um, so he attributed the win to our session. And the players did as well. They just connected the two. So they actually spoke in front of the camera and said, yeah, we have a guy. And he, apparently it works because we're winning. So in the post-match <laughs> interview, in front of the signs with yeah. all the logos behind just him, he's going, yeah, Rens the Vida, he's fantastic. <laughs> no, they didn't say my name, but they said, well, apparently, yeah, in front of the camera, it works. So because we have a guy, and apparently we're there. And they won, out of the last six games away, they won four. Huh. Uh, and they stayed in the league and the players got transferred. Oh, because they were going to get relegated. Yeah. Ah. So that was a big thing. That was a big thing. And uh, I think my washing machine is... <laughs> um, it was a big moment for... Um, did I put it? Yeah, it sure. If you want. This is, a, the, the, this is the sounds of uh, rents. This is, this is what happens when a man who's looking to summit seven mountains on seven continents does his uh, laundry. <laughs> Because even mountaineers have to, to do done. their laundry. Still to be done. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm not very good at doing the household, to be honest. But uh, Look, you, and you're the only guy in the world like that. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I, but I think there was a, was a, quite a pivotal moment for me because they they were expressing it in the media. Uh, my my future employer, McKinsey, they actually they heard about it. They knew the story. Um, all in all, was. There were good sessions, but it was also quite a quite a serious dose of luck involved. And uh, yeah, 
Did you work with that team the next season? Uh, a little bit. I did yeah. like three sessions or something. Um, didn't go that well. Uh, they had a different coach, so the coach also got transferred. And they lost all the good players. Um, so they had a new team. Didn't go that well. But um, isn't that a victory for you, that those players who were going to get relegated went on to other teams higher up in the league? Yeah, it's a big victory. So I'm, yeah. I'm actually in touch with some of the players still because it's, for them it's a big moment. It's in the lowest league of the team. If you, if you get relegated, you go to a very different salary scale. Everything is very different. Yeah. And uh, for them, it's a big step up. Yeah. Yeah. So for them, personally, these guys that were giving you shit about you can't play soccer and that's not you on the mountain, no. they owe their careers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I, think, I think they probably look, look positively to it. I'm actually working with the team right now. They're, they're again in the higher league at the moment and working with them, they're doing really, really well again. So it's... This coach has sort of asked me if he can repeat the trick a few years back. So how do you even start... How do you even start working with, with guys like that? I mean, you know, we see, we see these footballers. They're in, you know, commercials. They're at a different event every night of the week. Everyone in their life tells them they're amazing every day, every minute of every day. How do you even start to work with someone who, since probably he was eight or nine, has had that? That's his entire universe is I've been the best player I've ever known my whole life. Yeah. How do you even start working with somebody like that? Yeah, I think I think the trick there's a few tricks to working with soccer players in particular because it's it's so different from working with any other athletes. Like I work with hockey teams in the Netherlands, it's very very different. Uh, first trick that I learned on the first session after being broken down by the by the prior comments was that I actually I had planned to do 30 minutes of theory. It was about stress management, how to deal with uh, pre-match anxiety, and in my uh, designed calendar it said do 30 minutes of theory and why stress actually is there and, and how it works and how you experience it. And I think I was talking for like five minutes and you see the first guys looking at their watches and they're trying to look outside and they, they get really, really bored. They just, they just don't care. So what I learned on the first day was if, if you work with those guys, um, you have to put them on the spot pretty much. So it, it's not about you transferring knowledge. They don't really care so much. You have to make it very, very relevant. So you never talk longer than 10 minutes. You give them a very clear frame on, on what the problem is, and which is based on their experience. So you actually debrief their experience of it. It creates sort of a frame with some key questions that we can solve as a team. And then you actually send them on breakouts to solve stuff with the team that they also need to present themselves with the coach present and stuff. So that you put some pressure on them, actually give them 10 minutes to solve how your team is going to get back from a one to zero uh, behind. So solve it. What's the best possible strategy for this team? In 10 minutes, you're going to be presenting. Everybody will be watching. Um, that's a bit of a way to do it. So you put them on the spot. Great moments. Great moments because a lot of those guys uh, haven't been to school in, in, in the same ways. Uh, yeah, they've been, been playing soccer the whole they've time. They've been playing soccer. So yeah. that's the first time. They, that's they're why they're that good. Giving a presentation. Yeah. yeah. So there's great moments. But you just give them the right questions. Um, and you give them... The theory in sort of a, uh, a background information which is relevant, but not, don't deep dive on theory, just ask the right questions and have them solve it. So what does it feel like to you when you're at the game and this team that you've been working with yeah. goes well? Yeah, that's the best, it's the best. Uh, what I really learned uh, in working as a sports psychologist, it, it's actually more fun to be anonymously in the stadium and seeing other people perform really well when you know all the guys and you know their individual struggles and you see them do really well, it's better than actually being on the pitch or on the mountain yourself. So it's, it's hugely enjoyable, it's, uh, it's great. And the fact that if you're anonymous, 
nobody knows. So I usually get a press card so you're on, on the press area of the of the stadium, which sort of suggests that it's a bit strange because I don't carry a camera or anything. So people, they know that you're not just, you must be something strange involved with it. Yeah. But nobody knows. And you're just sitting there and just enjoying it. So it's, uh, and I have a, a chat group with the coach. So we, we send messages all the time. So it's uh, sort of, uh, I know his experience, what he uh-huh. thinks. Uh, Really, really cool. So you never wanted to be the guy that comes out to the game and goes, yep, that's right, my team did really well? No, no. We also agreed, actually, with, with all the teams I work with, that we agree that, that my name stays out of it. Uh, I think by now they, they will know. If they really search for it, they will probably know. But it, no, because it's about the team and I'm not in the, on the pitch. I'm uh, on the sidelines in the stadium. It's, it's interesting, though, that you know when there's so much money at stake, as is yeah. in these games, yeah. uh, in these leagues, that teams will do anything to get an edge. And, and certainly as people are cracking down harder on doping and things like that, and, yeah. you know, you've, you're going to want to, what can we do? How can we get the best physiotherapists? How can we get the best dietitians? How can we... Well, that, that's what you would think, and, and it's not always the case, though. The, the yeah? funny thing is that when I, for, for the first time, joined this team, I was sort of walking around the little stadium, and it appeared they didn't do any strength training, for example. And they play against Ajax and Feyenoord and bigger teams for pretty strong guys, and they just didn't do strength training. So my first comment was... So just a few questions. So what is the diet? How does the diet look like? And what is the uh, periodization of the strength training, like the different phases in strength training, and how do you align it with uh, the soccer sessions? And, and this guy told me, the coach, yeah, Rens, just to be clear, this is not Barcelona. This is, uh, <laughs> this is Excelsior. So this is, I'm not sure what you're thinking, but we don't do any strength training. And what people eat, you know, they have to decide for themselves. Right. So, and I, I, in my field, that was just unheard of. All the athletes I know, they, they really monitor this stuff because it's quite easy to do. So easy. Yeah. It doesn't cost the team anything. Exactly. It's not about money. It's just the knowledge was not there and they don't, they don't do it. Still? I think they changed a bit. They, they do strength training now and they have Herbalife as a sponsor, so they probably oh, okay. tell them a All bit right. what they should do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fair enough. So um, what about mountaineering? You've mentioned mountaineering a few times. How did, that, how did that start for you? When was the first? When did you get bitten by the bug? Who was the first person that you met that says, I've been up a mountain and I was like this? And you went, I want to know that. Yeah, well, I, I went for a trip to, um, to Everest Base Camp in Nepal. How old were you? I think I was maybe not, not that young because I was a martial artist and I was always focused on martial arts. Maybe 23 or something. And why did you want to go to Base Camp? Yeah, good question. I, I, I was thinking, why, why did I actually go there? Was it a Probably, Buddhist thing? No, not really. It was just, I really felt like, like just, I went actually alone. I just took one Sherpa and I went alone for a walk for a few weeks. I don't know why. I think because it, it really appealed to me and I knew it was, was going to be a little bit of a struggle physically and I really liked that stuff. So just chose to go, not, not, not having a very clear mission. And on the trip, um, I met a guy, he's a Danish, Danish climber, uh, Moens Jensen. And he, we had a little chat and he asked me a few questions. What kind of medicine do you carry? Uh, how did you prepare for this? And, and it was so clear that he was coming from a different league. He, he climbed Everest a few times. And he was sort of, I got a feeling of, like, I, I'm just a little guy walking in the mountains, but there are some big guys around me here that already climbed everything a few times. Um, and he was, he was quite a big inspiration, so we stayed in touch afterwards. I, I walked to Everest Base Camp and back. We had some chats. I invited him over to do a session for uh, the board of, uh, of a bank we worked for. Did it together, it was great. Then I decided to do stuff afterwards, uh, pretty much based on his example. He's a bit more extreme than I was. He, he cycled from Denmark to Nepal to climb Everest. 
Uh, I actually, I, I just fly to places. I, <laughs> Hang on. So he rode his bicycle from Denmark yeah. to Nepal, yeah. then climbed Everest. Exactly. And then did he ride back? Don't know if he rode back. Okay. But still, that's yeah. pretty. That's pretty immense. <laughs> pretty intense guy. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Just back a moment. You said you like to do things that make you uncomfortable. Why? Uh, I've been doing it pretty much all my life. I think one of my strongest drives... Because a lot of people yeah. listening would be like, I don't want to do anything that makes me physically uncomfortable. Why would you ever want to do something? Why would you jump in icy water and swim? Why would you climb up a mountain where yeah. you've got one change of underpants for a week? Why would you do this? Yeah. Well, why would you do it? Because First of all, I have a very strong drive for mastery. I've always had that, and I can't really explain why it is, but I really care about mastering something. Um, for example, in the beginning, martial arts was with the sword. I had a still; it's actually in my sleeping room. I can, I can show it to you. But it's a sword, a wooden sword, that people use for aikido. And I practiced every day. I think an aikido sword. Aikido sword. Yeah. yeah. Hours, just one, uh, one type of cut with a sword. I still think when I see myself doing the cut, I still think it looks like shit. It's not good. It's not good enough, at least. It's okayish, and I could probably hit somebody on the head with it. But it's not. It's not very, very good. So. The drive to actually master that particular cut is something I've, I've had for ages. I, it's, it's me, pretty much. Then, on a deeper level, I think that mastery I like very much, but mountaineering in itself is something where you really... It's, it's not, there's not people watching, it's just you. And you climb, you can join the team, but then everybody pretty much climbs for, for him or herself, because it's, in the end, it's about if, if you reach the summit or not. So it's very much a game where you sort of encounter all your own barriers on the way. Um, and the only certainty is that you have is that you actually, you, you're going to find the barriers. Uh. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Because it's going to be really extreme. And I really like that thing to sort of, it's a bit of self-exploration, see how you will deal with that kind of environment. So it's less about, are you saying that the only way you can let me just get the idea. Because I've experienced something, I've heard people talk about it who do Ironman and they're running for 10 hours at a time. Or um, I've experienced it certainly just doing marathons where you're running for four hours straight. And it's nothing like you're doing. But are you saying that you wish to explore um, previous internal limits, but the only way you can get to those internal limits is by doing something external it's quite extreme at least it helps me a lot i don't think it's the only way but but for me as a person it's a way that actually yeah it, it does help me a lot and and i do the same thing obviously with with my clients sometimes so I, I try to bring them to the same level to see what the actual barriers are uh but but for me it works it works perfectly and then 
I really, I really couldn't give less about if people like it or people think it's great. People think I failed, or I'm, I'm just not busy with that. It's uh, you just go, and, and you know it's going to be. I'm also I'm a bit scared always when I go. So I, I book the mountain, uh, buy the stuff like the shoes you can see there. Yeah. Uh, buy them for the mountain. I know it's going to be like minus forty or something. So I'm nervous for it. Uh, sometimes I can't I can't sleep so well in the last last few days before I go because I know it's going to be very tough. Then you just fly and you go there and then you just take whatever comes and you, you make sure you you stay you stay well. So mentally. what's it like? You just because I'm fascinated by this. You just go. I want to go and climb Denali. Uh, okay, which is the mountain? It's in Alaska. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to go climb Denali, and you find a trekking guide company that does Denali climbs and say, "Oh, we're yeah. leaving on June the sixth. Yeah, yeah. And you just book a ticket and go. That's a, that's that's really how it goes. Like Denali will be this May. Um, Are you doing it? Yeah, I'm doing it. Yeah, that's right. You're doing the yeah. seven summits. I'm <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's right. I, to be really frank, I, I don't care so much about seven summits. I care about the, the best mountains on the planet. So okay. for, for next year, the plan is to climb Denali and Amadablam. Amadablam is not one of the seven summits, but it, I think it's the most beautiful mountain on the planet. So Where is it? It's Nepal. Okay. It's not very famous, but it's, it's, it's the best. Okay. It's, it's really the best. So yeah, but that's how it goes. You, you, you fly in, usually to Kathmandu, you, you meet some other people that have also decided to go for whatever reason. And you meet up there, maybe you have dinner one, one evening, and there's, like, for example, the last mountain, Aconcagua, there's people from Mexico, there's people from Argentina, there's people from Canada, there's people from Russia, South Africa, uh, Germany, and, uh, and me. So then you, oh, you meet up, and you sort of look around the table a little bit, like, who's going to be strong in this trip? Because you, if you spend with people your, your time in the tents, it's better to get with the strong people because they may actually stay with you until the end. And uh, the weaker people, that they're obviously going to drop out. Uh, Aconcagua has a 30% success rate. So you already know wow. when you're on the table that, that 70% is going to drop out. So there's some, like uh, people will sort of ask, what did you climb before? And like, how did you prepare? And like, it's a bit of assessment. If, uh -huh. Do we want to stay with you a lot or not? Um, Usually all guys? Um, way more guys than girls. Yeah. Although Aconcagua also had quite some girls in, in this case, but usually it's pretty much guys, yeah. And uh, as a psychologist, do you like alpha, alpha, beta, alpha, alpha, alpha? Uh, yeah, a little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So I, I, re I really love those moments as a psychologist. I, I'm really intrigued by those moments. So you get back together. Everybody is extremely fit. People prepare for it sometimes for a year or for... So it's it's uh, it's very interesting dynamics how people look and, and how they behave in the first moments and uh, yeah yeah it's great. So who's it better to get with the person who's being loud and hey everybody I climbed this and that and the other at the uh, table or the person who's uh, the quiet in the corner? The, usually the second. Like what I've experienced so far, some some American guys that really they, they told a lot of the first stories about deadlifting 250 kilograms and stuff. I never I've never seen one of those guys actually make it. Um, Russians that are quiet, just a bit more introverted, and they usually make it. So I, I, I'm currently betting on Russians if I can, and there's not, not maybe not the most fun you can ever have in a tent, but it's uh, the guys are yeah just really resilient and, uh, and and a bit humble, and they make it. You talked about the sailor not getting much sleep and making bad decisions. Mm -hmm. What happens to your decision-making process when you're up above 
I mean, what's the highest you've been? Yeah. Like six thousand meters? No, it's uh, the highest one was uh, was last December is uh, six nine six two. Six nine six two. That's yeah. Very. That's high. It's high, but if, especially I'm I'm asthmatic, so I have uh, my lung function is sixty eight percent. Uh huh. So for me, I was, yeah, I was pretty yeah. much pretty much dying all there. <laughs> I didn't feel good at all. But um, it's also not that high. There's a lot of people climbing eight thousand or so, uh, a lot of the time. So it's not that extreme. Don't dismiss it, right? It's, it's six thousand nine hundred meters. is very very high. <laughs> so what happens to you? What happens to you when you get up that high? What happens to your decision making process? Yeah, I mean, maybe I should tell you another story about making wrong decisions on, on the mountain. It mm. wasn't on this one. I think I did the right stuff here. But what I tell my mountaineering clients, that mental readiness for a mountain actually means that you're willing to say no if it's not the right moment, um, which is a bit different than a lot of people perceive mental readiness. I think when I'm feeling really, really strong and confident, then I'm ready, uh, which is part of the story. But I think you're ready when you can say no when the conditions are bad. So even after a year of training, after flying or cycling exactly. all the way there, buying all the stuff, yeah. $6,000, $7,000 worth of gear in your backpack, exactly. getting up, reading the weather and going, not today. Exactly. Wow. That's, that's mental readiness. And it's very hard because no one will do it. And I was on an expedition on, on Elbrus in Russia um, a few years back. And we had the same dynamic. Like people fly in from, from everywhere, from, from the US, from Germany, from London, from Amsterdam. And people came in, and it is in an area in Russia which is it's officially a war area. It's the border with uh, Chechnya, uh, and the whole area is pretty much a bit closed down. It's very hard to get to, and in the end, you get there. Everybody's there with their gear and preparation. And we do acclimatization walks for a week, and and the whole team is sort of getting ready for it, and they feel strong. And and then the final three days that we're supposed to climb, then it turns out it's very bad weather. Um, and you, I think you're waiting at 4,000 meters or something. The summit is 5,642. So you're not waiting close to the summit. You don't really know what the weather is going to be up there. But you, you just know it's going to be shit because the weather report tells you it's going to be shit. And then you get a discussion with the group of people in the, in the little hut we're staying in where the guy says, well, guys, the weather is shit every day. And shit in Russia means like really shit. It means minus 40, no visibility at all, uh, everything white. So that's, that's what it's going to be. Um, yeah, so what do you want to do? And you get like a process which is essentially it's a bit of a group think. People will say, yeah, fuck it. I've flown to Russia, prepared for six months, bought all the stuff. I'm going. Yeah, and then in the end, everybody's going. And you end up waking up at uh, half past two at night, walking in extreme cold conditions. I had boiling water in, in some... some uh, uh, thermal scans that froze instantly pretty much. Uh, everything was frozen in, in, in a few minutes. Uh, my camera was frozen. Everything was, was, was gone in, in a very short amount of time. And you end up with a group on a mountain where you just should not have been there in the first place. After two hours, uh, 15 people on the slope. The guy sent 10 people down, Russian style. So he just he says, hold, you're going to stand still. He passes each individual and he tells some of them um, one sentence studied in English uh, if you go further you will die turn back so some people hear that story 10 out of 15 people hear that story if you go further you will die turn back and there's 5 people then remaining so 10 people go down with how, how did the 10 people react did they go oh thank you or I don't have a clue we were sending on, on an icy slope with wind everywhere you I, couldn't I see know. couldn't see I wonder what it's what it's like to hear that I mean, I guess when you're in those conditions, when someone gives you that fact, you're probably able to go, 
Actually, yeah, you're right. Last night when I thought in a, in a, in a warm hut yeah. and I thought, yeah, I'm going to go yeah. right now when this guy's telling me, if you go further, you will die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're probably right there, probably Ivan. Right. I'm gonna, I am yeah. might go back to the hut. Yeah. And, and some of them you could... You could and plus they've got a good story now. Yeah, yeah they yeah. do, they do. And, and you could tell, like, some of them were, like, shaking, like, like really, really wildly. So it, obviously they were in trouble. So I, I don't think they would actually dispute that... Uh, that argument from the guy. But then you get another decision point, and this is exactly where we went wrong. Like, you had five people left, and they sort of feel strengthened by the fact that they have not been chosen to go down. So then you already sort of, the guy already set us up to make the wrong choice, pretty much, and then he says, guys, uh, it's up to us. Do you want to go up or down? It's literally thumbs up, thumbs down. You can vote. Everybody feels strong because they weren't chosen, so they say we go up, including me. And sort of remembering somewhere in the back of my head that I think I've been telling different stories to all my clients in the past, but we're going up anyway. We're going to do this. So we climb up. We reach the summit. I couldn't stay on the summit for longer than 20 seconds or something because it was a storm and everything was blowing and it was just very dangerous. People were getting frostbite. And we just, so we're on the summit and the guy says, I think in a minute or 20 seconds or less, go, 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 we get, get down, get down, get down from here. Never found the way back from there, so we, we planted red flags all the way to the, to the summit. Never found the red flags again. So we were wandering around somewhere close to the summit for hours and hours and hours. Uh, at some point, I thought I, I had promised to call my girlfriend um, around 12. I think it was 5 on my watch. It was about 5, five hours late. Uh, so I, in my mind, it says he's probably going to check the weather report for Elbrus, trying to call me. Ah, so I, I got emotional on, on the whole trip. I saw people walking just randomly in the snow. We were just pretty much lost. Uh, until a point where, where one guy in the group, he came from Scotland, he was a doctor, and he, he sort of shouted for everybody to get together. Penguin style, so you make a little circle and you, and you just you look at each other and you, you close the wind a bit off from the outside. And at that point, you really realize you're so fucked. You're somewhere up the mountains, it's a storm, they they only come with the rescue thing until 4,000 or something. We were at 5,000 something. So they, they can't they can't come for you. We didn't have any radio contact. We had pretty much nothing. And you see your your guys in your team shaking. Uh, one guy had lost his glasses, so his uh, his goggles, oh. his eyes were frozen, and everything. Was, oh. So it, you see your team sort of disintegrating there, and and you realize you're probably looking the same way, and you just you're just in big trouble. Um, and in the end, what happened, we, we stood there and the, the guy, the Russian guy, circled us with a rope. It's the scuba diving technique where you, you give the rope to, to the center and then you make it longer and longer if, when you circle around the group. And he was hoping to find one of the flags and he did uh, after probably a very long time, but I, I don't know. But at some point he did and he tied everybody up, uh, harness and ropes attached. And we ended up walking down when it was just getting dark, walking down to, to the hut. I think we're there. So like, you found one flag and then you looked for the second flag and you saw, exactly, ah, it's this exactly. line. Yeah, you get the line. Because if you don't find the line, you'll end up in crevasses and then uh, you're in trouble. No, you don't want to be in a crevasse. You don't no. Want to. no, no, we don't want that. <laughs> no. How did it feel when you got inside the hut? Ah, just, that's the best. Yeah. <laughs> I remember being, well, feeling, feeling sort, of, sort of happy. I, I was able to give my girlfriend a call. Um, very emotional because she had been waiting for eight and a half hours for that call and then see, so we finally got it and it was very, very intense. Went to sleep straight afterwards. Everybody I felt looked quite okay. So I sort of checked on the people, everybody went, went straight to their sleeping bags and it was just completely wasted. 
next morning you get to see all the frostbite so people they get very puffy faces and then and pus coming out of ears and stuff and you see it only the next morning because when it's still frozen it's, it's okay the day after looks like shit um yeah what's it what's it like to have realized that you came that close to death I don't. Th- I really think that the way we dealt with it there was there was a Russian way of dealing with it. So you, people didn't really say much about it. We got down to the village. Uh, I remember getting a high five from the uh, a woman in the hotel, which sort of a Russian high five, which said, and she said, "I'm very very glad you're back," which was sort of saying that, that it could have gone another way. But but nobody really talked about it very much. And we had the, the classic vodka night that you, you're supposed to do after something. Every drunk, like, I think six or seven shots of vodka in the first 15 minutes and was just completely wasted afterwards. Then we f- everybody flew out. Um, the first time I sort of became more conscious of what it actually meant was when I, I kept waking up afterwards in, in Amsterdam. So I, I woke up a lot of nights like really sweaty and, and yeah, just unconsciously was processing the whole thing. But yeah. when I was still in Russia, I was pretty much in the mountaineering mode and just did yeah. it. But I had some, uh, some fearful moments later. So how did that affect your future expeditions did you remember that yeah well, <laughs> yeah the, the wise answer would be well there's a lot of changes but there's not really it's uh, it, it's a bit of the same thing um i hope really hope that i, I will say no next time when the weather report look like like looks like this and i have a bit of doubt there if i'm really honest i, I know the whole group thing how it's going to go and, and how people how prepared people are to go and how strong they can feel including myself after training for like such a long period, you really feel really strong, so you want to go. So I'm hoping it will be better next time. I'm not convinced that it will be. No. I do carry very good gear, though. I, I, I bring the best but gear. But you can ever. only control that. You can't no. control what the weather's going to do. No. You can't so. control if someone breaks a leg or something. Which we also experienced, actually, oh. a different mountain. Yeah, yeah, it happens. What is it, what is it to be willing to walk off the mountain? I think it's a it's a very big. It's, um, does it sure take it's more guts to walk off the mountain than it does to climb to the top? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So the walk up obviously is what you what you came there to do. So as long as you can do that, it's completely in line with with what I want, and it's completely fine. But but to turn back, I've never turned back. I've never not summited on the mountain. And the next few ones, it's going to happen that I can't summit because it's too hard. It's too cold. Uh, it's going to happen. I think it's that's very tough. I'm I'm really the same as with the sword thing, where I can practice for hours and hours. I'm the same with this. If I commit to it, I'm going to make it and give everything for it, <laughs> even if it has risks. Uh, yeah. But recently, you 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 were going to do an expedition, but you didn't go. Yeah. True. True. So I was actually planning to climb a mountain, which I think was relatively easy. Uh, island peak in in Nepal. So I felt it was going to be quite okay. But in my normal sort of preface for a climb, I have certain certain things that I have learned to sort of recognize where I start to train really a lot and I watch all the YouTube videos and I really get make a picture of my in my mind of all the different camps and, and the routes. So I, I really I can see I'm visualizing the whole the whole the whole thing. Didn't happen at this time. So nothing happened. Didn't watch any movies, uh, didn't go to the gym, didn't feel any anxiety. And very, very strange. I just kept on working. Nothing really happened. I felt it was much lower than the other mountains I had climbed in December. So I felt uh, it's going to be fine. And then two weeks before, I actually, I, I felt I'm actually, I'm just not ready for it. There's something, my mental readiness for this climb is just not there. Physically, I'm not there. Mentally, I'm just not there. 
So um, I thought it was the wise decision not to go in this case because I, uh, yeah. Well, they, you made the decision. You didn't yeah. do it when you were up there, but you made the decision. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. So maybe, maybe it's a wise one. Maybe I would have actually summoned it. I don't know, but it's. Uh, I, I, did, I just didn't feel it was the right, the right time. I would say it's probably a good idea, man. <laughs> <laughs> if you, if you're able to consciously accept that, mm. let alone unconsciously, like waking up at night or being or not being nervous and stuff like that, that's that's probably a good idea. Yeah. You're um you're doing a lot of work in the field of happiness. You came from sports psychology. You went and worked for a lot of corporate stuff you started working yeah. with McKinsey for a while yeah. um doing the kind of similar psychology stuff but in a, in a business sense how did the happiness thing come into that um well in many cases if you work with athletes like the, the, the crucial factors to help them perform better is actually their own uh, let's say their own flourishing making sure they're they're very happy strong resilient human beings so i already discovered a lot of the stuff when i worked with athletes that you don't have to teach them how to play soccer they know, but you have to teach them how to be sort of the best possible uh, person with support networks and everything. Um, I found the same to be true in leadership development in McKinsey, that a lot of the stuff we were actually teaching leaders were called EQ stuff, their soft skills, uh, and, and also vitality skills and how to be happy and strong themselves. Um, but after doing it for athletes for a few years and then later for McKinsey, I, I felt that the whole thing had been a bit of an elite version of psychology so it was doing psychology for the best people on the globe uh, or the richest people at least um, and I felt I was looking for something on, on to actually spread this knowledge to a larger audience um, and that's actually how I, how I started this company so I started with can we sort of create a little database where we make it accessible to everybody on the globe just open source uh, freely accessible no login codes etc uh, phoned a lot of university people doing those surveys, uh, happiness surveys, and got all the surveys within a week, posted them online, had the guy program a little report coming out. And then within a week, we had a little system working where all the happiness surveys on the globe were accessible for everybody without any cost. And that's how it started. Then we started to do some, some random workshops in Amsterdam, see if people actually bought into the concept. Just regular people just invite Everybody open workshops, you pay 20 euros and you get your, your booklet and the room and the coffee. Uh, so it's, uh, it's non-profit. I think we did like 20 of those in the first year. And then we found people really loved everything we were doing. And that's what the company currently is. Right. Yeah. And now it's blowing up. It's, yeah, it's completely blowing up. So I, <laughs> my, my work schedule is also blowing up uh, in, in parallel. So it's going crazy. Yeah. So we're starting the US, um, and while we're talking about Australia, talking about Egypt, we're talking about uh, Latin America, we're building the UK, we're obviously building the uh, test NL as well at the same moment. We have our own academy where we actually train people to deliver the same work. Um, yeah, it's blowing up. I, what's interesting for me is that measuring happiness is uh, becoming so much more important than measuring just you know, GDP or economic yeah. output yeah. as far as how is a nation going? Yeah. Well, I don't think it's, it's, it's not a replacement. It's, it's, um, it's an integration where, where you look at, at multiple dimensions of, of well-being. Um, for example, Simon Kuznets, the guy that actually made GDP, he, he said in one of his first speeches, he literally said, this is not a measurement of well-being. This is a measurement of, of, of economic output. 
for a country. This is not the same as well-being. People have stopped listening by exactly. the Exactly. And, and in the end, it was, was implemented for like 50 years as a measure of well-being. And it, it, it's not. So I think this is a... Um, it's an addition. It's a very useful addition to actually use and economic output data and, and GDP per capita, etc. And also use... Uh, something like well-being measurements to actually see how happy people experience life to be. That's, uh, so that's, that's where it's going to go. Bit you like see that governments will shift to, to using this I think they will, they will partly shift. You, you saw, of course, Bhutan shift with, with GNH, a Global National Happiness Index. Uh, so they were the first to really um, choose for this all the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's, there's some great learnings in there and some things which are still not completely there, but at least the choice to do it, is, I think, is great. Uh, we had the, the prime minister speak some time ago in the Netherlands, and then we asked him some questions. And like the biggest question from my side was, could you actually impact happiness levels? Did you do stuff to make it better? Or did you just measure it? And he didn't really answer it. So I'm really hoping that at some point that will be more clear. Mm, but I think there has been interest from uh, from the Dutch government. One of my guys is actually doing mindfulness classes with uh, people in parliament. Uh, there's interest from the government in the UK with Cameron, so it, it's it's getting there, but it's it's slowly, slowly, slowly growing. And yeah. what I mean, you know, because it opens up an entirely different, um, you know, the economic impact of if you want to be happier, you don't have to buy the big TV or having you know, like a play, PlayStation Four or you know a PC if you're that kind of gamer. Um, you know, if you want happiness, you can have it for free. And you can be far more satisfied than spending a thousand bucks on something. True, true. So it's, uh, yeah, so the question is, will, will it hurt economic performance? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. If you look at uh, data sh- comparing very happy individuals uh, based on their own subjective uh, scores, of course, if you compare them to l- less happy individuals, they're in, in general, they're more effective. They have higher output. They earn more. So I don't think it's, uh, it's, it's either or. It's actually happier people will also produce more in the end. So. I think it should be a good connection there. Right. And what about, you know, I guess, making decisions for, like, in, inside companies? Do you, will a happy company still go, great, let's just dig the coal up and burn it, everything will be great? Or will, do you think people get a little more conscious about what their companies are doing? Well, the funny thing is that the, the data for happiness so far um, has been done on country level. So if you, if you search for happiness data online, you can find through Gallup, through the UN, through a new economic foundation, they... They create data on country level. So you can compare Bhutan versus the Netherlands versus Australia. And there is no real um, database for in-country well-being in specific companies, specific sectors. So most most companies don't really know. They don't really know how well people are doing. They will measure engagement. uh, So how how well do people fit into this job? How well do they like their people around them? Uh, But they don't really measure well-being of the people in, in a scientific sense. So I think the first thing is that companies need to start actually measuring it just to monitor it. Uh, it can be done for free. All the surveys are there. So it's it's a very simple tool to use. Um, but based on that, you can actually make choices. But at the moment, I only know maybe five or six companies that actually do it. Hmm. Um, and the funny thing is they, they pay maybe 200, 300,000 euros for engagement surveys. And you can use free well-being surveys, which are pretty much the same. Yeah. But they don't. <laughs> so. <laughs> so there's a little gap in the market there. It's, it's yeah, yeah, fair enough. The, yeah. So, you know, how can, how can people listening, you know, they might be thinking, well, this is all well and good, but how do I feel happy today? Like, what's something that someone can do listening? Because I don't know what people are doing right yeah. now. They're doing laundry or driving the car or at the gym or going for a walk. People, yeah. let's have a listen to this show. 
Yeah, so, so most important interventions, like obviously there's a lot of stuff that, that science has proven to be to be useful in life. Uh, some of it is useful for the more, more like longer period and some of it is sort of instant happiness boost. If you look at uh, right now, instant happiness boost, most powerful things to do. Um, I'll give you two, which are the, the strongest ones. Uh, the first one is exercise, clearly. So that has a str very strong influence on how people feel. Second one is to do something which is kind for other people, uh, random act of kindness. So if you yourself want to feel uh, stronger, happier right now, the best choice is either one of those two. Go outside, do something nice for others, unexpected, without expecting something in return, or go to the gym. That's the in-the-moment, real-time happiness boost. That's, that's, that's enormous. Yeah. For it some is. people, though, gym might be a bit too much. What what? When you say exercise, it just meant to elevate the heart rate for 20 minutes? What, 10 minutes? What is it? Yes, it's a very good question because the, the Dutch government promotes a 30-minute sort of activity schedule. Uh, I wouldn't agree as a, as, a, as, a happy, as a happiness psychologist. I wouldn't agree with that because if you look at the beneficial effects of exercise and when they actually happen, uh, you can see that there are some, some, some baselines you need to achieve, intensity baselines. So... Obviously, if through exercise you want uh, serotonin, dopamine levels, uh, uh, endorphin levels to rise, which give you a good feeling uh, in many aspects. But they don't actually rise until you reach certain thresholds in your exercise. So I think if you really want to get to that point where you benefit most from it, on the, on the brain, brain level, happiness level, then it's best to actually make sure you reach at least 50% threshold uh, of intensity. Mm -hmm. So if you can lift 100 kilos and you lift less than 50 um, doesn't give you the same thing you should, right. you should get your intensity level quite close if your maximum heart rate is 180 and you stay below 140 during the exercise you don't get the same happiness boost as when you go a little bit higher what about people who for them a 30 minute walk is the most walking they've ever yeah. done yeah. What about for those people? Yeah. That level well, obviously, like doing exercise in the first place is a very good thing. So it, yeah. it will never hurt. It's always great to do it. Uh, for Also for different reasons, because we know people that exercise, they also have higher self-esteem and other things. So it's always a good thing. But if you would have the choice to do some high-intensity work, um, because if you can do that, actually, then I would strongly advise you to do it. Uh, but otherwise, like even like a 30-minute walk is still great to do, of course. Yeah. 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 So, like, just drop down, do a couple of burpees, and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. But then, obviously, there's also some, some time, time, uh, timelines that you could get into. I think if you do 30 minutes high-intensity workout, you'll get there. You'll get the feeling. Right. Maybe as a general guideline, like, there's two kinds of rushes you could get from exercise. One is pretty much a dopamine rush, and you get it from very high-intensity stuff. So, if you do 30 minutes, 45 minutes CrossFit kind of workout, burpees, sprints, uh, intense stuff... Uh, you end up feeling very sharp and, and, and focused, which is dopamine-related uh, activity. And if you do a longer uh, systematic cyclic way of doing it, like cycling or rowing or running, lower intensity, but you stay with it for like 60 to 90 minutes, you get more sort of relaxed, satisfied feeling. Uh, it's a very different rush to it. Uh, it depends on what you want. Well, that's why I cycle. Yeah, that's that's what I get, and I actually feel I when I don't I can't run at the moment because I've got a torn uh, labrum in my left hip. But I remember when I was running, I'd feel it come. I'd feel it at about forty-five, fifty-five minutes. My yeah. brain would switch over. So and you recognise the feeling? Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, and you have to run to get it. Yeah, you can't 
you can't just get it up to 10 minutes. You know it's, it's an eight or nine kilometers down the road. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So that, that's the, for that kind of feeling, you have to do some, some longer, longer period. You know what's what? I'm just talking about it. I'm getting goosebumps just yeah. feeling, knowing what it feels like. It yeah. feels amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, it yeah, feels yeah, amazing. Yeah, um, so they're two short-term things. What are, you said there's two, uh, there's a few kind of longer-term things that people can do. Yeah, there, there's many, but the, maybe maybe the strongest, most important one. Um, so there was a study done at some point where they compared the most happy people with with averagely happy people, and I think that's that's a great one. What's the difference between the extremely happy group and the, and the moderately happy group? And I think the the key insight was there's only one big difference, and that's the quality of intimate relationships people have. Um, they don't need to have a lot of them, but it needs to be very strong quality with a few loved ones. It could be kids, parents, friends. Uh, so the key techniques would be in that direction to actually strengthen very close relationships. Uh, given the fact that people have, on average, two real friends, uh, very good friends in the Netherlands, so that means 25% of people are, are also feeling lonely. They don't really have good friends. So there's a very strong need for it. And, and one thing we usually do in, in, in workshops and in coaching is to actually help people express emotions to other people. Uh, like gratitude, if they really feel gratitude for somebody and they're, they're really happy somebody's actually present in their lives, that they actually tell the person. Uh, sometimes you do that quite rigorously. We actually give them a phone, uh, have them write a note and then call the person directly afterwards. It can also be done in different ways. I had a, um, my coach did it this week. Um, he told a guy, he was a CEO of a bank actually, and he told the guy to go back to his mother's place, buy a huge bouquet of flowers really huge, had to be huge, uh, and go back to your mom's place and then you give the bouquet, you give her a hug and two kisses and say, mom, I'm very happy with you. And the guy was like extremely, <laughs> extremely resistant. Like, I, we don't do this stuff in my place. That's not how it goes. I don't give my mom a hug. I said, well, you can think about it as long as you want, but in the end, we're just going to do it. So how much time do you want to think? Because <laughs> we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> so he actually, and he said, well, if, the, if you don't want to go, I'll stop working with you. It's up to you. And the, end, the guy went to his mom's place. It's sort of a gratitude visit where you just thank your mom for a lot of stuff. And that's, that's one of the most crucial things you can sort of teach people, I think, when it comes to happiness, to really build those close relationships and express the good stuff. And most people will tell you that's not how it goes in my family. We do it very differently. And uh, that's usually what the response is. And I'm not very satisfied with that response, but just go for it anyway. <laughs> so speaking of friends, where does, and I've, I've heard you talk about this, but speaking of friends, where does Facebook come into happiness? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so we do a little trick with people in the, in the room when, when we give the happiness seminars. We ask them if, what they would rather choose if they had the chance to either get 5,000 Facebook friends or online friends or two real friends. And I, I would say 99% of the audience actually guesses the right thing. It's better to choose the real friends because they're very strongly correlated with happiness levels and Facebook friends are not. So there's a 0% correlation between happiness levels on average and, and Facebook friends. Uh, but there are some signs currently that, that Facebook can be a risky thing. Um, it may actually lead to, to sort of inflated self-esteem. So you, you post something, you get a lot of little hugs and, and thumbs up online for something which is not like, it's a bit of an inflated self-esteem move. Um, also, it can lead to um, problems with self-esteem in the sense that people post a lot of good stuff all the time. So don't get a really strong, um, realistic view of reality. So the first signs are, let's say, either it doesn't have impact or it can have negative impact. I would also, 
I wouldn't be surprised if it also shows to have some good sides that you stay in touch with people that otherwise you wouldn't stay in touch with. But uh, don't bet all your happiness on Facebook for sure. That's, <laughs> 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 that's just, just a tool for, uh, yeah, for some good reasons and some bad reasons, but uh, it's not going to be the, the strongest one. Cool, man. Um, well, I'm going to have to get out of here because I, I, I promised you I'll be out of here by 11.30. Yeah, that's eight minutes. Oh, yeah. so I've still got to take your photo. Um, but look, mate, I'm, I'm just really grateful that we could do this. I'm really grateful I could, that I could talk to you. And, uh, and since I met you, I have been deliberately smiling more. Really? <laughs> that's great to hear, man. Great. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Can you tell me why that works again? Oh, there's, there's a hypothesis why that works. Smiling actually... Uh, creates a happier feeling in the brain as well. It's, it's facial feedback. The, the, the fact that you're smiling neurologically tells your brain that you're actually happy and it creates a little bit of happiness, uh, at least. Wouldn't advise you to go with fake smiles the whole day, but at no, least... No, no, no. I, I, and certainly here in the Netherlands, there's a lot more opportunity to do it. Every time I pass someone on a bicycle, I give them a big smile. Great. great Every great, time, because I'm truly grateful that I'm on a bicycle and I'm truly grateful that I'm here and I'm truly grateful that we're both on bikes. Awesome. And it's great. Awesome. <laughs> it's so great. Cool. All right, man. Um, good luck climbing mountains. Thanks. And um, I'm going to take your photo, I think. Yeah. Cool. Where are we going to do it? Let's do it. Uh, there, that wall over there. Cool. Okay. So that was Renz Divider. Thanks so much for listening to the show. What an interesting guy. Energystrategy.eu is his website. Go there, check out what he does. Really interesting cat. If you like this show, please do me a kindness. Tell a friend. Either jump online on Twitter or on Facebook or however you want to let somebody know. Just let them know about this show. That'll be ace. I personally have to go to bed. <laughs> I have to go to sleep. It's been a big, big week. A lot of uncling today. I tell you, man, twin nephews can all take it out of you. <laughs> uh, my condolences go out to people with kids of their own how do you do that every day i do not know that is immense i have a huge week ahead um there's a very very big big tv thing that i can't quite talk about just yet but i hope i can tell you about it this time next week but um yeah there's a lot of work to be done in the next week so i do kind of have to go to bed so even though it is about 28 degrees and 9 30 at night here in brisbane it um it's time for sleep so I wish for you what I wish for myself in about five minutes from now I wish that uh, you sleep well and dream of beautiful things talk to you next week catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.